human papillomavirus, one of the leading causes of cervical cancer. We know that. That's the reason why Australian girls aged between 12 and 13 now receive the HPV vaccine, which is, of course, an Australian discovery. But did you know that human papillomavirus is also a cause of, amongst other cancers, throat cancer, a very tough cancer? And this is one of the reasons the HPV vaccine is now being rolled out for boys across Australia as of earlier this year. Well, this morning on Life Matters, a special feature for you from my lovely colleague, Carol Duncan, who presents Afternoons on ABC Radio in Newcastle. Brad Keeling is perhaps best known as one of the founders of the former telco, OneTel. But to Carol, he's an old family friend. They grew up as neighbours. And Brad wanted to tell you his story in the hope that it will help others and get parents really thinking about this vaccine for their sons. And of course, when you get diagnosed with the big C, your life becomes consumed by being a cancer patient. Suddenly your diary is very full, but not doing any of the things you'd like to be doing. Instead, it becomes a steady stream of hospital appointments and tests and scans and perhaps surgery and perhaps chemo, radiotherapy. And you're asked to weigh up the pros and cons of interventions you'd barely heard of before. Uh, and you're in a position to have to make some very weighty decisions indeed. So Brad wants to help you by sharing his experience of all that. And here's his story. I didn't smoke heavily, but I've been around smokers I started smoking when I was 17 and I gave up when I was 24. So I smoked for about eight years, I guess, and not very heavily, I don't think. But, but, yeah, I smoked. I've been around smokers all my life. My dad worked for WD Nature Wills. <laughs> but that didn't really mean that I took up smoking because of him. In fact, probably he was the person more or most... Uh, against me smoking when I started smoking, I suppose. Um, but I'm not sure that this is all about smoking. It could be. Did your parents smoke? Yes, both of them smoked. Both my parents smoked for all their lives. Um, ironically, both of them died of cancer, but neither of them died from a cancer which was caused by smoking, so say the experts. My father was a blender of tobacco. He was a buyer of tobacco originally for... William Butler Tobacco Company and then W.D. Nature Wills, which became British American Tobacco. And as a buyer, he became a blender. And then he effectively was the chemist that put together the cigarettes in the way that they were compiled, flavours and different leaves and different things. And he travelled lots of places from Mareeba in Australia to you know, Rhodesia or rather in Africa. Like somebody created perfume and blended different flavours together, uh, my dad um, created cigarettes, which I shouldn't sound too proud about that, really. <laughs> However, we don't know yet what has caused your cancer. No, my, one, my cancer is throat cancer, and one of the causes of throat cancer is smoking, but I'm not a smoker. As I said, I've been around smoke. There are other causes potentially as well, but we just don't know and may never know what caused my cancer. I guess they'll have some pathology eventually and they'll know. 
alcohol is is another cause. Um, so smoking alcohol are the are the most uh, prevalent. The other one is HPV, the human papillomavirus, which apparently people can have without knowing they have it for decades. The vast majority of people have HPV. It's a natural response to ask why. Why do I have this cancer? Where has it come from? What caused it? And is there anything I could have done differently? But for Brad, the cause was unexpected. A virus, human papillomavirus, or HPV. Yes, HPV is the virus young women are now routinely being vaccinated against across Australia. It is a leading cause of cervical cancer, but it can also cause throat cancer, especially in men. In Brad's case, it started with a simple sore throat. I went to the doctor back in September for a sore throat that was quite persistent. I had a sore throat for what seemed like months, um, and I'd kind of put up with it. it. It seemed to come and go, but actually it was pretty much always there. And um, eventually I gave up whinging about it and went to the doctor. She looked in my throat and saw that, you know, it was a little red, so prescribed some antibiotics, which I took um, religiously for two courses and then went back to her and said, no, I've still got a sore throat. And she was, I don't really know what the thought process was, but um, she was wondering whether I had some post-nasal drip and I felt like I did. I couldn't quite work it out. I now know that the lump in my throat that I'm constantly trying to swallow is actually attached to the back of my tongue, but I didn't know that at the time. So we put some steroids up my nose for a few weeks and tried to dry up my nose and um, uh, that didn't help the throat and I still had that feeling and so I went back and saw her late November and at that point she decided that that wasn't really what we wanted. Um, so she had me see an ear, nose and throat specialist that Saturday. It's everyone's fear that the persistent sore throat isn't just the lurgy being shared around the office or from being a bit run down from too much work. Specialists confirmed a tumour in Brad's throat with the likelihood of a secondary cancer in his lymph glands. The diagnosis was hard enough, but what followed was a very difficult choice and it was left entirely in his court. It's not like going to the doctor and finding you've got a sore throat and having somebody tell you, well, this is the... Um um, this is what you do, take this pill and, and you know, lie down. The textbook treatment, I'm told, by the radio-oncologist for throat cancer is chemotherapy and radiotherapy combined and that surgery in the past has been a drastic measure only taken if necessary because to get to the back of your throat the surgeon needs to cut through your jaw, split your jaw open and then excise the tumour, then close the jaw up and join it back together again. And apparently that's not always that successful and affects obviously all sorts of things from speech to swallowing to goodness only knows what. However, Nowadays, there's a new option for surgery, which is a robotic surgery option where they don't need to split your jaw. They essentially send this little robot 
down your throat. It makes no choices of its own. The surgeon manipulates it remotely and it chops out the tumour. So I had to choose between surgery and chemotherapy. I've chosen the surgery route because I think it's going to be less of a strain on me and my body than the combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Even with the surgery, Brad will still need radiotherapy to try to ensure any microscopic cancer cells are destroyed. When you're a patient staring down your own mortality, making a decision like this can feel impossible. You're not a specialist. You're still coming to terms with the details of the diagnosis, let alone having to decide on a life-saving treatment option. Sometimes the only real choice you have is to try to be positive. Yeah, I'm confident that this is a curable cancer. Both the surgeon and the radiologist separately and independently said that the outcome of this is uh, most likely that it will be cured and, you know, it's, it'll be gone. Why do you want me to record your story? Recording this story is, um, I think, something that, well, recording this story, I think, is something that people will be able to listen to, read, um, look at photos, and make informed decision about the choice between chemotherapy and the operation. The operation using this robot has really only been done in Australia a dozen times or so. So when I was given the choice and the necessity to choose between chemotherapy and the operation, um, I had to do my own research on the robot, read about it, find out what it was. But now this little story is something that other people can read and hopefully it'll help them weigh up the choices between chemotherapy and radiation versus the operation, then this little story is really just my story. Dr Jonathan Clark is a head and neck surgeon from the Sydney Cancer Institute. Dr Clark won't know until he receives the pathology results from Brad's cancer whether or not HPV has been a factor but he certainly suspects that it is. Brad's been diagnosed with a squamous cell cancer of the tongue base. Uh, squamous cell cancers are the most common type of cancer that we see in the throat and back of the tongue. Um, and his cancer has spread from the tongue base to a single lymph node in the upper part of his neck. Uh, the majority of these cancers in 2012 uh, viral cancers caused by the human papillomavirus and we think in Brad's case that this is one of those types of cancers. Previously the majority of cancers in the throat and tongue base were uh, cancers induced by smoking um, and uh, the rate of smoking in uh, countries such as Australia is actually reducing and we're seeing a dramatic change in the prevalence of cancers in this area um, with the majority now becoming viral cancers as opposed to cancers due to smoking. HPV, Dr Clark, is the same virus that girls are now being vaccinated for with the cervical cancer vaccine, is that right? Yeah, it's the same virus and in fact it's the same type of that virus, the type 16, uh, which causes cancers both in the cervix and cancers in the throat 
in particular the tonsil region. We don't exactly know why this uh, type of cancer is increasing. Uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons that have been speculated. And it's very important to be aware of this change because the prognosis from uh, viral cancers in the throat is much better than cancers due to smoking. How common is HPV? How many people would carry it? Most people are exposed to HPV. However, the majority of people, of course, don't develop cancers. It will be very interesting to see what the impact of the uh, HPV vaccine that's been introduced for girls uh, has on the prevalence of throat cancers uh, in the head and neck population. The procedure for Brad, you were going to use the da Vinci machine. Traditionally, cancers in the back of the throat uh, were operated on using a very radical approach. And what I mean by radical is that we would have to cut the jawbone and swing the jawbone out to be able to get to the back of the tongue adequately to remove the cancer. Because of that, there's been a, a shift in treatment away from surgery to using radiotherapy in combination with chemotherapy for cancers of the tongue base in particular. More recently, with the introduction of robotic surgery, which has become very popular for uh, prostate cancer, um, we're able to access the back of the tongue without making any cuts on the lip or the face and get excellent visualisation of the area and be able to remove tumours that we were not previously able to do well uh, without doing a radical operation. How do you feel, Dr Clark, about heading into surgery with the da Vinci machine, with this robot, compared to the way that previously you'd have done surgery like this? Well, we have not done very many operations this way, so there's also always a degree of trepidation when you're embarking on something that you haven't done a hundred times. But in the cases that we've done so far, we've found that the robot gives you excellent visualisation of the area, much better than using traditional approaches. What are you expecting with this surgery? The first part is the removal of the tumour from the back of the tongue. Um, and what we're expecting is that we're going to remove about one quarter of the base of the tongue area, extending onto the tonsil. And that operation we'd expect to take in the realm of about 40, 45 minutes. Um, we also need to do the second component, which is removal of the lymph glands from the left side of the neck. And we'll do that using the traditional approach, which does involve an incision in the neck, which we'd expect to heal very well. Um, and we need to remove the lymph glands from the upper part of the neck and a bit further down. Uh, and be very careful of a whole host of important structures in that area um, that are important for movement of his arm and shoulder and his speech and swallowing. Have you got kids? I've got three. Have you got Wii games and Xbox at your place? <laughs> You must be a wizard. <laughs> my, my sons beat me every single time. <laughs> Even my six-year-old can beat me on the Xbox. Okay, I won't mention that to Brad, okay? <laughs> That's right. No. Yeah, I wouldn't mention that one. And on Live Matters this morning here on RN, Carol Duncan, my ABC Newcastle colleague, speaking there to head and neck surgeon Dr Jonathan Clark. Carol is sharing the story of her close friend, former OneTel director Brad Keeling, and his experience of being diagnosed last year with throat cancer. 
So now to surgery. Carol is heading into the operating theatre with Brad, microphone in hand. It's, it'll be a long haul, six hours as it turns out. On a Friday night in Sydney, I slipped into a set of surgical scrubs and braced myself to enter the operating theatre. It was a bright and busy environment, a bit intimidating, but not scary. And the surgery had just begun with the robot positioned over Brad's chest and head and its long, elegant arms gently obeying Dr Clark's movements at a console in another part of the room. So at the moment we've uh, got the majority of the tumour mobilised. Um, we've come around the middle aspect and the front half, um, the majority of the back half, and we're coming over to the lateral side, which is over to the left near the tonsil. Now, over that side are some of the major vessels, uh, so we just need to be careful while we finish off this last portion of the operation uh, not to uh, injure any of those. I get the impression so far that that has been incredibly quick. Oh yeah, definitely. So if we were doing this with a laser, it would take, I think, at least double the time. Uh, there's no doubt about it, because we don't have the manoeuvrability that you do uh, with the robot. About two hours into the surgery, it's obviously not proceeding as quickly as first hoped. The cancer in Brad's throat is more extensive than first thought, and that creates a bit more of a challenge for Dr Clark and the robot to make sure the cancer is fully removed. Jonathan, how far through Brad's surgery are we now? So we're about uh, four-fifths of the way through. We've taken out the tumour, and now we're looking at the uh, margins of the excision. We want to be about five millimetres around the tumour everywhere um, and at the moment uh, we need to take a little bit more tissue right down near the larynx to make sure that we've done that. So we've taken out the um, bulk of the tumour and then we've uh, taken off some edges of what we think is normal tissue and we want the pathologist to say to us that there's no uh, tumour in that normal tissue. Brad Keeling's throat cancer surgery actually involves two operations. The first, utilising the Da Vinci robot, has been completed and pathology is being checked before the head and neck surgeon, Dr Jonathan Clark, commences the second operation to remove the cancerous lymph glands from the left side of Brad's neck. This surgery is performed as traditional open surgery and expected to take about two hours. So in many ways, removing the lymph glands is a more technical or more demanding exercise because there's a lot of very important structures in the neck. Um, the nerve to his tongue, the nerves to his shoulder, the nerves to his diaphragm, the nose to his arm um, and a whole bunch of sensory nerves to give you feeling in your neck as well. And so we need to contend with all of those. Um, we need to operate around the carotid artery and the internal jugular vein and then all of the muscles that support the voice box. And we need to try and avoid a hole that communicates from the inside of his mouth to his neck. Um, because if there is one, then he'll leak saliva into his neck and that's a very dangerous situation. So there's a lot of technical aspects to this next part uh, that are very important. But uh, it's the sort of surgery that we do every day of the week. Uh, so we're quite familiar with that. What is this HPV, the human papillomavirus, and what is it doing to people? Well, it's causing a whole lot of cancers and illnesses that we really don't want to talk about because it's not very nice, polite conversation. But here we go. HPV is responsible for almost all cases of genital warts and cervical cancer, 
90% of anal cancers, 65% of vaginal cancers, 50% of vulva cancers, 35% of penile cancers, 60% of oropharyngeal cancers, these are cancers of the back of the throat, including, as in Brad's case, the base of the tongue, and also the tonsils. HPV is spread through direct skin-to-skin contact. So anyone who has any kind of sexual activity involving genital contact could get genital HPV. That means it's possible to get the virus without having intercourse. And because lots of people who have HPV may not show any signs or symptoms, they can transmit the virus without even knowing it. A person can also be infected with more than one strain of HPV. What you need to know about it though is it's not other people who contract HPV. It's just about all of us. Four out of five people have at least one type of HPV at some time in their lives, but for most of us our immune systems throw it off and we never even know we've had it. But for some people it can go on to cause these serious health problems, these cancers, life-threatening cancers. I caught up with Associate Professor Karen Canfall from the Lowy Cancer Research Centre at the University of New South Wales and I asked her a little more about HPV because it's not just one virus, it's over 100 of them. Well that's right, there's a, a large number of types of HPV that have been implicated in cancer but it's actually it's really in particular two of those types that are responsible for the vast majority of cancers and they're called HPV 16 and 18 and those types are the ones that are actually included in the vaccines that we've now had made available to us. This is the key point that we now have yet another form of cancer that is in essence preventable. Yes I think that Really what we're seeing with HPV is just an incredible success story in cancer prevention. This started first of all of course with vaccination of, of girls and women in Australia because HPV has a very important role in cervical cancer and in fact HPV is responsible for virtually all cervical cancers. The types I just mentioned, 16 and 18, are responsible for about 70% of those cancers. Five years ago in 2007, we had the implementation of the National HPV Vaccination Program in, in girls and women in Australia. And that's really just had incredible effects already. For example, we've seen a drop in the number of young girls infected with HPV already. We've also seen a reduction in the numbers of high-grade abnormalities of the cervix, which are the precursor to cervical cancer. And we've seen a reduction in also anogenital warts, which are also caused by different types of HPV, which are also included in the vaccine. So in terms of what's happened in females, it's just a remarkable story. And we've really seen it play out in Australia before anywhere else in the world, because Australia was one of the first countries to adopt the vaccine. And now it is taking another step as of this year with the extension of that cervical cancer vaccine to boys. Well, that's right. So again, Australia is one of the first countries in the world to make this decision. So last year, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee recommended that young boys are included in the National HPV Vaccination Program, and that will roll out from this year. So what that means is it's going to provide incremental benefits both to boys and girls. And I think what we have to remember here is that HPV is transmitted between males and females. So vaccination of females already was going to have some beneficial effects for males 
ultimately because it would cut off the circulation of the virus in the population. But by including young boys in the program, we have even greater coverage and we also have protection of the gay community. And so I think this really does provide an important incremental step to protecting males um, even further against HPV infection and the cancers that can be caused by it. The cancers that they can cause in men are equally as horrific. Well, that's right. There is a whole range of cancers that HPV can cause in men and also in women at sites other than the cervix. These include anogenital cancers, but also cancers of the head and neck. These are an important set of cancers. I think the complication is that not all of these cancers are caused by HPV, but still a significant fraction are, and probably that fraction is actually increasing in the case of head and neck cancers. And that's one of the things that Dr. Jonathan Clark was saying to me, that at this stage, the researchers don't know why the rate of it is increasing. We, we can't say definitively, but it certainly seems, both in Australia and the US, that that is happening. And a US study has recently shown that, that cancers of the head and neck, maybe now about 70% of them could be attributable to HPV. So that is a high proportion of those cases. I read on one of the US websites, the Centre for Disease Control, that by 2020, head and neck cancers in men will outnumber cervical cancers. Well, yes, and I, I think that's really relying on the success of ongoing cervical screening. So mm -hmm. I think the other message that we need to say here is that vaccination is a really wonderful thing and it's going to have important long-term effects for both men and women in Australia and, and, in fact, in most countries that have implemented vaccine programs. But for women in particular, it's really important not to forget about cervical screening because that's really what's also protecting older unvaccinated women against cervical cancer and really the two preventative mechanisms need to work together for the foreseeable future. The main message here is that the vaccination program in females has been incredibly effective. Um, it's about 73% coverage in, in young girls in Australia so there still is one in four girls in Australia not being vaccinated. So I think for parents of both young girls and young boys at school, it's really important to see this as a long-term wonderful gift that you can give to your children in terms of cancer prevention. One month after Brad Keeling's throat cancer surgery, I invited him back to see how he's going. He's been getting assistance from a speech pathologist over the last month and his speech has improved a lot and he's also attempting more challenging foods. But it's hard. I didn't expect it to be quite as so hard as it was um, in the hospital. I'm in the recovery post-surgery. Um, it took longer than I thought it would take. Um, Although that said, you're back at work. You've been back at work for a week or more. I am. I'm, I guess, fundamentally impatient. I have a huge... Um, <laughs> I have a huge internal sense of urgency about things that um, probably means I'm impatient and not a very good patient. No, you're not a very good patient. I saw that firsthand. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's all right. Your secret will go to my grave. Mm. And stay with all the nurses that I threw out of my room. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was harder um, than I expected. Uh, sorer than I expected. Um. I didn't believe myself that my voice would change. Um, it has changed, and to me, 
quite noticeably. Other people quite diplomatically and politely tell me it hasn't changed much and they don't notice any difference. But I must admit, I open a lot of meetings with an apology for sounding a bit like a drunken sailor um, and that I haven't had anything to drink yet today. But um, uh, apart from the self-conscious feeling I have about my voice, I um, I figure it's okay. I'm okay with it. I'm, I know you think that that's sugar-coating things a little, and it probably is, so I'm I'm disappointed in some respects that I didn't believe my own story. I mean, I, I, I got it wrong, in other words. I actually thought my voice would be okay, um, but it has changed and I find it difficult sometimes to talk um, or difficult to get my um, tongue around the words, what's I've, what, left, what I've got left of my tongue. So um, that's kind of weird. Um, I'm learning to swallow again. I made light of that in the first week or two, but the reality is... It's you not do, very funny. No, you do need to learn to swallow all over again. Mm. Um, and I get that hopelessly wrong from time to time and nearly choke myself. Um, so it's very easy for us, as we know, to, to swallow something and have it, you know, quote-unquote, go down the wrong hole. Uh, for me, it's much more easy for things to go down the wrong hole. Than and potentially very dangerous. Oh, quite. Um, um, so I, um, I'm conscious of that. Um, eating uh, is, uh, has been much more difficult than I thought. Um, again, I made jokes about you know, living off soup and, um, and stuff like that and um, scrambled eggs, but I do find that I have to eat a lot more softer and easier to manage food than I expected I would. Mm. I get incredibly frustrated when I'm just a little bit hungry and feel like a snack. I can't grab a biscuit, for instance, um, or put some you know, Vegemite toast together because those things are just a little too hard to eat. Um, eating a chocolate or biscuits or chips, as in crisps, are difficult because um, we we consume them and then with our tongue we kind of clean our teeth a little bit. Uh, if you think about that, I can't do that because my tongue doesn't manoeuvre itself around inside my mouth um, almost at all anymore. And so um, it, it's practically impossible to enjoy a packet of crisps um, or anything like that. All right, let's try and give that a little bit of perspective, though, Brad, because as you said, you're just uh, just over a month from the time that you've had the surgery. Most people would still be at home convalescing and feeling pretty sorry for themselves, but you've been well and truly back at work for a week or more. Uh, the surgeon has said that it, it, it can take months for that numbness to to ease, although there will likely be some form of permanent nerve damage from the extent of the surgery. He took a lot more of the base of your tongue than he expected to. The tumour actually extended further down your throat towards your trachea, the, your larynx, sorry, that, than he expected to. Uh, so what was going to be a 45-minute operation on that first operation, the throat part, uh, that actually took about three hours. Yes, um, it was much longer, I gather than expected. He did take much more, and he's told me that too. He's taken much more than he expected to take. Uh, therefore, 
obviously the tumour was bigger than anybody expected it to be. Um, and um, and yet, yeah, you're right, I'm back at work um, as much as it is. Um, I, um, I get tired easily. Um, as I said, I'm sort of fundamentally um, impatient, so um, I'm kind of annoyed that I'm not back to normal, but you're right, it has been a month. It's obvious that your speech has been affected, although I expect that that will improve substantially over time, as will eating, drinking, swallowing improve. Uh, but there's a fair bit of the journey to go before you get to, to that point, and um, it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately, isn't it? Well, for me, it will get worse before it gets better because of the secondary cancer in my lymph node, which was removed, and the likelihood that there might be microscopic cancer elsewhere um, in my lymphatic system. Um, so they are going to subject me to radiation therapy for a little while, the details of which haven't been planned yet, but suspect that will be sometime in the next 30 days. It's obviously hard work for you to talk. How's your pain and discomfort now, a month later? Um, more discomfort than pain. Um, I'm still on the painkillers. I've... Um, I've reduced the painkillers, uh, uh, for what it's worth, and, and the amount doesn't really matter so much, but I was taking them four times a day. Uh, this time last week, I reduced them from four times a day to once a day over two days. So I went from four <laughs> to two to one. Mm -hmm. And uh, this time last week, literally Thursday afternoon last week, I was in no good shape whatsoever. Um, so that was a very foolish thing to do, but that... Um, I was just wanting to get rid of the painkillers. I have a very good pain uh, management regime that I really should follow and listen to people about. Pain management is, is a very important part of the healing and recovery process. Um, and um, one shouldn't be as impatient as I have been. How do you feel? Do you feel positive? I'm never really negative about much except in quiet moments. Um, I'm quite positive about it. Uh, as I've said, I'm kind of disappointed. I sound a bit like a drunken sailor from time to time. But and you've gotten a bit skinny. I suppose I've gotten a bit skinny. I can't really afford to lose much weight. But then again, I haven't been drinking much beer, so maybe <laughs> I should be drinking more beer. We actually went and had lunch last week. It took a couple of hours, and you said to me, the trouble is... I'm exhausted before I've had enough to eat. Yes, it, you, you do find that um, once you've got to the point that you can, can consume some real food, um, as I said, I'd love to hoe into a steak, but putting that to one side, there are some foods that I can eat, provided that they are, you know, cut small. Let's just take something simple like, you know, sausages and mashed potato. Um, really easy thing for me to eat now because I can... You know, I can chew a bit, I can swallow and what have you. But after one sausage, I'm so exhausted that I really can't uh, even consider a second. So um, it takes too long to eat what I would really like to eat. And that's kind of disappointing. I'm getting plenty of calories and protein because I have lots of, you know, scrambled eggs and, you know, lots of custard and all sorts of stuff that sounds really good and yeah but and it's not a eat. steak is it no it's not and so that's kind of disappointing so i'm getting plenty of calories i'm just not getting what i really want
I'm sure we're going to have that steak lunch. I'm not sure when it is. No. There's a bit to go yet. Mm, sometime soon, I But hope. I'm sure that we will. All right. Thanks for the catch-up. Mm-hmm. Goodness me, a very big thanks to Brad Keeling there uh, for sharing his story with Carol Duncan. And to Carol, she put a lot of work into that. She's a very busy daily presenter of ABC Newcastle uh, local radio. Carol Duncan, much loved in Newcastle. And Carol says that after Brad recovered from the surgery, uh, just before Christmas last year, he then went on to have six weeks of radiotherapy. And that's gruelling, as you may know. Radiotherapy itself is painless, but it, it effectively burns the tissue it's directed at which can be very painful and when it's pointed at your neck and your throat it can severely affect your ability to eat and drink and swallow you lose your sense of taste food becomes a chore instead of a pleasure the good news is this week Brad had the feeding tube that had been inserted through his abdomen uh, into his stomach removed last Friday and he really wanted to share his story with Carol uh, to encourage parents to consider having their boys vaccinated against HPV as part of the uh, national program. HPV, that is. And perhaps you can relate to Brad's experience. How did you go with with some of the decisions uh, you heard Brad grappling with today? If you've also had the experience of throat cancer, we'd really like to hear from you this morning via the Life Matters website, abc.net.au slash Radio National. Look for Life Matters. We're on Twitter. Some of you have been tweeting. Carol's very active on Twitter. You'll find her at Carol Duncan. And I know she would love to hear your feedback, so please tweet away. And also our Facebook page, there's a post there with a photo of Brad in surgery. And we'll include a link on the Life Matters webpage to uh, a whole sort of set of feature uh, material that uh, Carol put together, including photos and extra audio. Look, next on Life Matters, are your power bills on the up and up? Bet you they are. It's happening right across Australia. Queensland is the latest state to announce a steep increase in the cost of electricity. So what can we do? What's in our control here? What can we do to reduce our energy bills? And how far have we come in terms of renewable energy so that we might actually find other sources of energy so as to reduce our bills? Uh, Join uh, sustainability advocate Tanya Ha, green energy specialist Giles Parkinson and uh, energy broker James Grudgeon. They'll be uh, with us on the show and we'll be taking your calls too. Love to hear from you. And thank you for your education today about the distinction between H and H. Robin uh, tweets us, it was good enough for Eliza Doolittle. Hash Henry Iggins. <laughs> thank you indeed. Have a great day. Looking forward to your company next on the show.